Reporting for Ogilvy Flour Mills, your women's editor, Kate Aiken. Hello, everyone. Happy Monday to you. Blue Monday? Oh, listen. Now there's no sense feeling that way. And just to take your mind off the housework and the washing and tonight's dinner, here is a thrilling story about Joan Hall, young Toronto mother who runs a nursery school and goes right on having her own family. That's your women's editor, Kate Aitken, on the CBC circa 1948. She's one of the women in media featured in a new book called Hearing More Voices, English-Canadian Women in Print and on the Air, which explores the time period from 1914 to 1960. Despite media being a difficult business for women to get into prior to World War II, there were female writers and broadcasters who persevered. However, many have disappeared from history along with those broadcasting archives. On this episode of Broadcast Dialogue, the podcast, we talk to the book's authors, Peggy Kelly and Carol Gerson, on their efforts to acknowledge the working women of Canadian broadcasting and publishing in the first half of the 20th century. Hello, my name is Peggy Kelly. I come from both a television and uh, literature background, so I have a PhD in Canadian literature, and that gets me up to the point of writing this book with Carol. Hello, everybody. I'm Carol Gerson. I am a retired English professor uh, from Simon Fraser University, where I taught in the English department for many years, primarily Canadian literature, a lot of women writers, and a certain amount of publishing history. Let's talk about the book itself. This covers a very specific time period, and one that often isn't associated with women working in media. What was the inspiration and the motivation behind this project? Well, for myself, I was interested in the uh, radio writers because I have a background in media. And um, I worked for CTV in the mid-1980s. And when I was there, I experienced uh, unequal pay for equal work, discrimination on the job. Um, For instance, when the station had to transfer from film to video, the film people needed to be moved around. And I went to the operations area where the supervisor told me all newcomers in his department start at the bottom as VTR operators and, uh, you know, learn on the job how to operate within that department. So... That was fine with me, but one of my male colleagues who was, you know, roughly the same level as myself in film was um, promoted to a better position. And it was um, authorized by the president of the station. The operations supervisor told me that his normal practice was overruled. And the union, which I went to, they refused to file a grievance. So around that time, I was reading... Jean Bruce's article that was circulating that's on, she wrote about discrimination at the CBC. So I saw similarities. After I left uh, television, I went to university to a women's studies program, and I found myself in a course on women in media led by Gertrude Robinson, who was the first female editor of the Canadian Journal of Communication. And so I wrote in the, an essay in that course that was about my experiences and I found it interesting because I was able to put my real life experiences within the framework of a theory that we were discussing in the class. 
the professor asked me to revise the essay for her special edition on women in the media. And I also wrote it, rewrote the article for uh, Union Magazine, Our Times. And so when I started uh, working in literature and found that these themes were going on everywhere, I was drawn to combine the radio writers with literary writers, the other ones we cover in the book, Hearing More Voices, uh, poets, nonfiction writers, and novelists. So let's talk about this book as an undertaking. You were delving into an area where in some cases audio or other records weren't kept. How long did it take you to write? And how did you both embark on this process of discovery? (laughs) Yes, I think Carol is going to take that one. Yes, well, it's an interesting story. I'm not sure exactly when it starts. Um, When did you defend your dissertation, Peggy? 1999, that's when we met, isn't it? Yeah, so I guess it starts back then. Um, I come in from the literary side. I have spent much of my career recuperating undervalued or lost women writers. Um, Some of them uh, are sort of well-known, but should be better known. I've done a lot of work, for example, on Pauline Johnson, about whom people are always interested in. So, yeah, I met Peggy. Let's say it started 20 years ago. And I'm coming in. I came in from the literary side, uh, trying to find out more about what women actually read and wrote. And one of the things that was interesting to discover is that there was a lot of emphasis in the recuperation of earlier women writers. One of the big um, impacts of feminism in the academy was looking for the overlooked and lost women writers in Britain, the U.S., and in Canada. And I was pretty. I've been pretty active in the Canadian side. Well, it turns out that during the 70s, a lot of people looked back to the 19th century and early 20th century, but then everybody kind of just stopped at 1920. So you have people like Margaret Atwood saying she didn't know there was, she really had any predecessors. And Margaret Lawrence and others were kind of taught that there was a complete void of women writers before them. And of course, that wasn't the case at all. There were literally thousands of women who were getting into print, many of them literary, many of them doing much more functional work. So we're dealing with a number of silos. One is that the recuperation efforts in the literary side seem to focus on the big names, uh, people like Dorothy Livesey, who, who's pretty important in our work, but is, is out there and every, you know, a lot of people are researching her. So even among the female scholars themselves, feminist scholars themselves, there hasn't been a tendency to look at the much broader field. The second silo is media-based. I'm a print person. And very few people who spend their times working on print actually check out what was going on in the other media, even though in the 20th century, as other media became part of the cultural field, um, film, radio, and then eventually television, there's been a reluctance to actually see how the, the writers themselves became multimedia operators, partly by desire, partly by chance, women who broadcast on the radio and then were produced in print or vice versa, women who started out in print and then ended up in radio and television. And so one of the things when I was just reviewing the book now for this uh, discussion, one of the things that really struck me is the multimedia aspect of so many of these people who are best preserved in print because you can find them in the library and, um, and of course, multiple copies of their books, people like Mary Grannon, who is an, an incredibly um, prolific children's writer. But in fact, 
it was the other media that had an awful lot to do with their careers. And so, but it's much easier to find Mary Grannon's books than to find her radio and television broadcasts for children. So meeting up with Peggy meant that we could bring our, our diverse interests together and see how they coalesced. And uh, it's taken many years to get this book finally into print because we kept finding more people. We kept finding more things to look at. Uh, one of the things that impressed me now as I was going through it is a number of people who are actually mentioned. And here I have to commend our magnificent indexer, Cameron Duder, because the book has a very long and detailed index, which means if you're looking for passing or brief references of people, you can find them in the index. And I think that's a really important part of our book because it just indicates, just looking at the sheer length of the index, you can see how many people were out there involved and worthy of mention, even if we don't have time to give them more than a paragraph. Yes, that was an important part of our uh, plan at the beginning. We wanted to get as many of those lost or unsung writers in the book as possible. And so it was. it's a survey, and there's short mention of many rather than uh, a real deep, detailed dive into a few people, which is the more common approach for academia. Most academic authors will focus on three or four uh, writers or at, at the most in one book. Because we were, we were doing a recovery project, we wanted to get in as many as we could. And uh, yes, uh, Carol has done surveys in the past, so she was familiar with that. So in the time period you're writing about, women are often absent or under-recognized in the historical record as part of what you call knowledge gaps in Canada's cultural history. Let's get into to why that occurred. If I may say so, the Academy had a lot to do with it. The people who shape the dominant narratives, a historic of history and literature from the scholarly end, and, and, at the, and the scholarly end is the most powerful end, were predominantly guys. And so they look at the great men, the knowledge, the sense that they might be a great woman was already kind of antithetical to their mindset. And so when you look at the way the canon of Canadian literature and Canadian culture was constructed in the 60s and 70s, when the, this wave of Canadian nationalism created a, a real quest for the story of Canada, you find that the dominant figures are masculine. The women started breaking through in the 70s, but they were taught by the men. And so if you look at something like the literary history of Canada, which was published in the early 60s and became a real uh, cornerstone of the recuperation of Canadian literature, which only began to be taught in the 70s nor, as a, nor, as a normal, normative subject. Before that, it kind of filtered in and out, depending on the interests of various people. So the, the groundwork was laid by guys, and the historical narrative was laid by guys. And it was up to the women to try and find out all the missing pieces and I should say white guys yeah. as well, the stories of indigenous and, and people of color, um, people involved in the, in the cultural field in that way were also, of course, marginalized. So it's been a big question of dislodging a monumental historical edifice. And it's been going on for a while. But what, what was so interesting is how the more distant past has received more attention, I think, than the recent past. And I'm not quite yeah. sure why that is. Well, yeah, and also there's there has been within the historic historical trade within the area of writing history and within general society uh, just a major 
devaluation of women's opinions, themes, and work. And mainly, I think that has to do with the sexual division of labor, because uh, women are have been linked to home and caregiving for so long. So women's history and concerns have been seen by historians as special interest, not mainstream, too personal, or not hard news, all of those different approaches. When we're in school, many of us hated history because it was all traditional history uh, focuses on dates and state politics. So we found that there were 10 books published on Canadian radio history from men's perspectives and memories, but uh, there were only two on women in the media before 2020. Right. Yeah, I think that's really important. And I was going to add that what we're not aware of is the implicit gendering that occurs time and time again, even and even now. And there's a quotation from the 80s. I can't find the source, but it was, a man's book is a book. A woman's book is a woman's book. And I think mm-hmm. that summarizes the implicit gendering that occurs. It occurs now in the book trade too, except that Women are doing are receiving more attention because they recognize as the principal purchases of a lot of books. But even now, when you look at, at patterns of book reviews and prizes and whatever, you can see it gendering occurring, although there's been a lot of improvement in recent years. But if you go back, what one way to see that implicit gendering is to go over the big literary awards from the mid-century, from the 1920s through the 1960s. And that became a convenient narrative to pursue how women were pigeonholed often so that the in in the in a lot of genres women's narr- the stories that women wrote that were based more on their personal lives were more likely to win prizes whereas the men who wrote biographies of other people were more likely to win prizes and what's really interesting is that for an, in a number of award categories women actually did better before 1960 than from 1960 to 1980 even mm-hmm. though that was the era of, you know, this this awakening with with all our wonderful writers with with Atwood and Monroe and Lawrence and Gabriel. Well, Gabriel was a little earlier. So there's this. Canadians are very self congratulatory. They keep saying, "Oh, women are really have really been important in Canadian literature." We, you know, we always we recognize women. Well, in fact, if you look at the numbers and if you look at the field as a whole, you'll realize that yes, amazing people like Margaret Atwood and Margaret Lawrence have certainly received attention, but all the other women have not. Whereas in, if you look at male writers, you'll see a much, much greater range of male writers who receive attention. So we congratulate ourselves because we recognize a few stars. And then generally speaking, we tend not to um, see who else is out there. Yeah. Another reason we haven't heard of many of the women that we're trying to give space to in our book is the fact that the broadcasters destroyed everything. I know when I worked in television, the videotape was not kept. It was erased and reused. There was some film. There was a small library of film stock to um, turn to when you needed some general footage for a news story, for instance. But paper archives mostly were destroyed. Not everyone, but the private broadcasters just didn't have the space or time or interest to keep things that would be interesting to to us to go through. And even at CBC, um, I read that Elizabeth Long, one of the producers in the 1940s in the talks on public affairs department, she had planned to take all of her files home when she left, when she retired. But somehow they were thrown out before she had a chance to do that. Let's talk about the dawn of broadcasting. You found that women were actually, I guess, discouraged from going into radio in the period 
from 1924 to 39, but that changed when they were needed during World War II. Yes, women were not welcome on air. They had difficulty getting hired before the war. Some of the stories we found related to that, Jane Grey, who was, uh, she did manage to get on air in the 30s and 40s, but she was um, told that women weren't welcome and she had difficulty finding a spot. And I found the same thing in the 1980s. People, most of my male colleagues in that operations department were hostile and uh, there are more better examples maybe from the 40s. In uh, southern Ontario, there was an official Christmas card from a station, and it showed a disembodied woman's legs, just her legs, with the caption, Christmas wish of a well-filled stocking. So, yeah, women were not made to feel welcome. And they started at a lower salary when they did enter. And it was hard for them to move from female ghettos like uh, support staff to a technical job. But during the war, the men left, and that's when women had this window of opportunity, especially the writers, but even others, still not so many female technicians. But there were female producers in the drama department, um, very rare. Most of the producers were male. Uh, however, there were jobs opened up for women in the war. There are so many gems in this book with details that I was unaware of, including that Nellie McClung was the first woman to serve on the CBC Board of Governors from 1936 to 42. And she was the one who recommended the hiring of female announcers at equal remuneration. Yes, well, that shows that there wasn't wasn't that uh, equal pay for equal work then. And there were very few women there, so she recognized it. Yeah, she was the token woman. (laughs) That's right. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? The token woman was a very contentious issue among the provinces. That's right. Yes, nine members on the board, CBC's Board of Governors, nine allowed and divided up across the country. So BC somehow ended up with... uh, supplying the token female for several years. And at one point, they decided they were tired of that, and they recommended a man who was active in their provincial liberal party. And the government in Ottawa was also liberal, so it seemed logical to them. But the MP who was representing Alberta refused to name an Albertan female to go to the board. And there was a kerfuffle in the, in the press about this mix-up and this argument that the politicians had. And so eventually uh, they settled it by BC sending another woman. And they never had more than one woman on that board. And it ended in 1958. So let's talk about some of these early women in radio. Okay. Do you have any that you highlight in particular? Yes, I was thinking of a couple, Kay Livingstone and Mary Pete. And I thought of them because there were different reasons that people haven't heard of them now. Uh, Kay Livingstone, she's um, on the positive side. She's um, been honored. By, but it's because her family has kept track of everything, all her accomplishments, and uh, written about her and supported her. She was a radio host during World War II. She had the Kay Livingstone show for uh, CBC in 1944, so during the war. 
and um, the program schedule described her as the little dark girl with the big brown eyes whose charming voice is heard over CJBC in a program of poetry. And they seemed to think it was amazing that she wrote poetry as well. So that was the kind of thing she faced. Um, she was also an actress later for CBC uh, radio drama, but mainly she was an activist. She was the, one of the founders of the Congress of Black Women in Canada in 1951. Uh, Black History Week came out of the work that she did with others. And she also coined the phrase visible minority while she was working on the International Women's Year founding committee. And that was later. Now she has her face on a stamp and she's had other honors. So her activist colleagues, her daughter, Renee Livingstone, and Black historians kept her memory alive in spite of her lack of publications, because that's something we noticed. If a radio host, female radio host, didn't publish something, we found it hard to find anything out about them. So Kay was different. She didn't publish anything, but she, her, her name has been kept alive. And Mary Pete, we know of her because she published three memoirs. And one of them was called A Girl in a uh, CBC Studio. So she explained her program, Tea and Trumpets, in that book. She was a, a real humorist, a comedian. She actually put out a, uh, I don't know if it was a tape, but later on something that was devoted directly only to comedy. But she certainly had a marvelous sense of humor and a great understanding of satire that came through in the program Tea and Trumpets that was broadcast by CBC Montreal between 1958 and 1965. And uh, she, ha she is interesting to me because when she first went into radio, she was recovering from postpartum depression. She found that doing some creative work, writing scripts, cured her of it. And she claimed in her book that someone who is creative like her, she has to do something creative. It's like breathing. And so she went into it, even though she was often asked, what does your husband think of this? Or how are things going at home? You know, that was <laughs> always people's uh, concern. And as a matter of fact, her first show on CBC in Montreal, the Montreal Herald announced the fact that it was going on by this uh, headline, Housewife Mary Pete Selling Comedy Scripts to the CBC. <laughs> she says she was teased by her male colleagues uh, for that, that label. But she found a way to speak back. For instance, one of her listeners wrote in and said that Mary Pete's voice was whiny and nasal, and it was an offensive letter. And what Pete did was read the whole letter on air during her show, Tea and Trumpets. And then after reading the letter, she had the newscaster, Frank Willis, read the rest of that episode. And he was well known for having a, a deep voice. He was a newscaster. Yeah, so she knew how to puncture people's uh, negative comments. So all of this begs the question, where are we now? You talked about how few books have been written about women in Canadian media. How far have we come? Well, I think one of the problems is that we have far more media in our lives. It was easier to follow trajectories when it was, well, first of all, just print. Then we have film entering, but film was highly specialized because you had to go to a movie theater. Radio becomes part of people's lives in the 20s, 30s, 40s. 
And but now then with television and now the, all the media that are competing for our attention, we're in, a, we're in a very different space. But one of the things that is very hard to remember, and I, of course, I can remember it from my childhood because I'm old enough, is the significance of radio in the home and the, the way that um, radio people became part of um, people's lives. With people like Kate Aitken, for example, who was the friend of thousands of, of women at home who would have the radio on while they, and listening to Kate Aitken while they were doing their ironing or cooking or whatever, who gave domestic advice, very calm, very, very quiet, self-spoken person. And, and she, but incredibly organized, she was, she was a master at, at, at media and, and managing her career. She ended up publishing a great many cookbooks and books for domestic, books of domestic advice. And people like her were actually, she was in the kitchen. She was there. She was the companion. And that sense now of radio people being your daily companion it is gone. I remember children's story hours at night. And then people like Mary Grannon, Just Mary. You felt like you knew these people because you didn't have to do, you didn't have to separate them from your lives. You didn't have to sit down and watch a screen. You could listen to them while you were doing other things. And so I think that sense of connectedness with with that that oral medium is something that we've lost and may possibly reemerge now but I I'm not sure I think <laughs> I think those days are past and what is fascinating too is the way that the people who specialized in cre- who created these personalities in one medium also transferred many of them to other media like Mary Grant and like Kate Aitken like Claire Wallace and so their presence as figures in the lives of a great many people is something that um, we've kind of lost today. I don't know, but I'm skeptical, and I'd, I'd like to see someone bring forth some statistics so we could compare to this earlier time period when there was so much discrimination in terms of pay and, and work choice and all the other things, lack of pension, inclusion, poor um, uh, valuations for insurance, all those things, life insurance, yeah. So I don't know. I think the I don't think we have achieved fu- uh, full equality. I've heard anecdotal claims that it has changed, and I hope that's correct. But I'd really like to see some statistics. Yeah, part of the issue has been that a lot of the radio groups, particularly the private ones, don't like to release their inclusion and diversity uh-huh. stats. You know, that's a that's an ongoing issue that's been highlighted by the current racial climate. Are there any thoughts that you'd like to close on? There are so many stories that we haven't told. I, I was looking through it now. <laughs> I think um, there's so many people who deserve to be better known because they were very much part of people's lives. They were out there. They made a difference. And that's been lost. But maybe it can be recuperated. You never know. I mean, that's, that's the extraordinary thing is that one of the advantages of the digital age is that stuff is getting found and people are, are starting to learn about it. And so it could be that there are still boxes in people's basements of, and attics of, of uh, family archives, of tapes that might be recoverable. And there are stories that are waiting to be told. Are you still collecting stories? Are we paying? Um, well, I'm working on Madge Macbeth now, and she I'm doing a biography of her drafting one, and she was involved in radio in the early days. She was born in 1878. I'm going to be looking into that part of her work, but I haven't planned on uh, 
doing more searching for the others. It really, in, uh, for more people that would be similar to what we've done here, because it takes so much archival work. Uh, it's a lot of fun. I really enjoyed the um, listening to tapes uh, of that CBC has left with the archives and hearing uh, the way they put together a play and use the music and sound and voices to to develop it. It's it's fascinating. It's just a very huge amount of work to to go forward with that. Yeah, I, I see our I see our book as a seed bed, and I just hope that people. I, and I don't know if I can follow this metaphor, but I do hope that people pick up some of these suggestions. That if they're wondering about that box of letters in the attic, please keep it. Mm-hmm. Uh, don't throw it out. Read them. If, even if you can't read cursive anymore because they're not teaching it in <laughs> schools, uh, save them <laughs> because uh, the times are changing so quickly. It's so easy to lose track of, of what was significant in the past. And there's a tendency just to, you know, to highlight sort of important events. I'm speaking the day, you know, two days after Remembrance Day when everybody's talking, you know, people are talking about their great grandparents' war um, correspondence. That isn't the only thing that mattered. What mattered very much, I mean, that's, yes, that matters, but there are other things that matter too. And digitizing things is great, but it, doesn't, it isn't the only way of preserving them. So keep the, keep the original records too, please. And that's also a plea to repositories. Mm-hmm. Keep the original newspapers. Just because you've digitized one edition doesn't mean that you've got them all. And besides, you might not be able to read them once they've been digitized because you never know what OCR does. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, there's a great tendency to clear out records because the digital era seems to be overtaking everything. And, and I worry that it's not going to work out quite as beautifully as the dreamers think that think it will. Where can people find the book? Yes, Online? it's available at uh, <laughs> borealispress.com. It's a Canadian publisher in Ottawa, and they have an online store. So if you go to borealispress.com, you can order it online. Um, you can try to get it into your libraries. We've been, we've been um, notifying libraries. Um, and we would also like our readers to admire the cover and the photographs because we went to great lengths to find images of many of the women. Not easily done, let me say, especially images of them at work in front of a microphone or in front of a typewriter or with a pen in their hand. And uh, we want, because we really want to make it clear that we're interested not in the sort of dark corners of their lives, but in the professional side of their lives and bringing forward their work as, as major cultural participants. I'm so pleased you could both join me today. Yeah, it's been fun. Thank you for having us. Thank you. We're certainly interested in getting the word out there that the history is alive and should be kept alive as long as possible. listening to Broadcast Dialogue. For more information about the podcast or to receive exclusive access to our weekly briefing about the Canadian media industry, visit us at broadcastdialogue.com. Don't forget to like us on Facebook, connect with us on LinkedIn and follow us on Twitter and SoundCloud.
I'm Matt Kundle, host of the Sound Off Podcast, the show about podcast and broadcast. Since 2016, we've been speaking with amazing people who have populated your ears for decades. Legendary broadcasters, research wizards, talent experts, podcasters, voice talent, almost 400 stories, all for free. Subscribe or follow the Sound Off Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at soundoffpodcast.com.